May 11th, 1996. Value Jet 592 pushes back from the gate at Miami International Airport about an hour behind schedule, preparing to take a 90-minute flight to Atlanta, Georgia. At 2.04 p.m., the flight takes off and begins its climb. Six minutes after takeoff, the pilots hear a loud bang in their headsets and notice a loss of electrical power. Passengers start smelling smoke and then see it begin filling the cabin. The pilots request an immediate return to the airport, but less than four minutes later, at 2.13, the plane plunges nearly vertically in excess of 500 miles per hour into the Florida Everglades. All 110 people on board perish on impact. What caused this plane to plunge out of the sky so quickly after takeoff? Let's find out together in this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Black Box Down, our podcast all about aviation incidents. As always, I'm Gus, and I'm joined by Chris. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. We're here to uh, talk about ValleyJet 592, a little bit of an older uh, flight, 96. I, I guess it's not that old, but no, you know, 24 years ago. Uh, it's been a while. I remember this one when it happened. I think it happened right around the time I was graduating from high school. So I don't know why it's, it sticks out in, uh, in my memory. I think I would have been 9 or 10. Oh, so you were not graduating from high school. No, <laughs> I was maybe graduating from, uh, what, what is what primary school? Is that? You're probably like in third or fourth grade. Yeah. Um, as always, I want to remind everyone, uh, if you like this podcast, make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast platform you consume podcasts on. Make sure you give us a rating as well. Hopefully, uh, we're a five-star podcast for you, and we'll we'll keep working hard. We really we really could use some ratings. And uh, please tell your friends. Uh, oh, yeah, tell a friend. Tell one friend. That's the... You could do more. Uh, you could do more. Yeah. One's a minimum. One. <laughs> yeah. You know. Okay. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, get down to it. So Valley Jet 592. Uh, this plane was a DC-9. So it was pretty old. This was a 27-year-old plane in this incident. Delta had actually originally flown it between 1969 and 1992. And they actually retired the plane and uh, sold it back to the manufacturer, McDonnell Douglas. Uh, then McDonnell Douglas in 1993 sold the plane to Value Jet, kind of like, you know, Buying a used car, right? So wait, who who they just they they can do that with planes? They're like, oh, this plane is too old to fly, and they just sell. It, like Delta didn't want it anymore. It's not too old to fly. Just Delta. It was too old. Like Delta didn't want to deal with it anymore. So it's like you have a car. You have a, you know you've driven your car for a while. You know it's fine still. You don't you want a new one, so you know you take it back to the dealership. You trade it in, right? That's essentially what okay. happened. Okay. And then you know ValueJet came along looking for a good deal on a, a used plane, and uh, they they picked this plane up. Yeah, they're not in, called uh, Value Jet for no reason, huh? <laughs> well, uh, we're going to get to that. <laughs> uh, so, at the time of the incident in 1996, the plane had clocked over 68,000 hours in the air. So, for reference, I did a little bit of math on that. That's 2,833 days of flying or 7.76 years in the air. Whoa. Uh, the average fleet age at Value Jet at this time was about 26 years old, which is incredibly old. Uh, so I, I did a little bit of uh, digging around and I found an article on the pointsguy.com where they uh, discuss the ages of other airlines. So I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. Uh, American Airlines average age is about 10.8 years. Okay. Southwest Airlines is 11.2 years. United Airlines is 15.1 years. And Delta is about 15.8 years. So value jet was pretty much double. Uh, yeah. standard jet age uh, these days. So this flight was crewed by Captain Candy Kubek, who had almost 9,000 hours with uh, just over 2,000 and being in the DC-9. And the first officer was Richard Hazen, who had almost 12,000 hours and uh, comparable, just over 2,000 hours of them in the DC-9 as well. Uh, and there's a, a bit of a, a historical footnote to this incident. 
uh, Captain Candy Kubek actually became the first female captain to die in a commercial airline crash in this uh, incident. Oh, yeah, wow. it's uh, terrible. It's not. It's not one of those like first female things you'd want. No, you to definitely be known do for. not want that one. But it's it's shocking that it t- it took so long. You know, 1996. Flight 592 pushed back from its gate. Like I said, it was about an hour and four minutes behind schedule because it had guess what mechanical problems. Uh, there was an issue with the jet's autopilot, a fuel gauge, and a cabin fan were malfunctioning, and the right auxiliary hydraulic pump circuit breaker was showing a fault. Jeez. So and it had a few things going on. It's like, again, using the used car analogy, it's like your check engine light's on, and the electrical tape you're covering it fell off. You, guys, I get you tape and cover the light again, so I wouldn't see it. Well, It's so, like you got to get out back and, and kick it, and then it starts. Right. You get your friend to like help you push it down a hill. God. Um, so the autopilot couldn't be repaired. But the other issues were resolved or, you know, they weren't super serious. So Value Jet, like you, like you alluded to earlier, they, and, and we've kind of talked about, their planes were a little older and they actually had gotten into trouble intermittently. They were known for being lax when it came to safety. And in 1995, the, the FAA wanted the airline to be grounded. <laughs> and the U.S. military actually did not trust this airline to fly military personnel. So they were already kind of under scrutiny. So like these kind of mechanical problems were business as usual for them. So since the autopilot couldn't be repaired, you know, they were going to have to fly this flight manually. Not a big deal. Like I said, about an hour and a half flight. At 2.04 p.m., uh, they finally take off from runway 9 left and they begin a normal climb. And just six minutes later, uh, the pilots hear a loud bang in their headsets and they notice that, you know, there's a loss of electrical power. And the passengers can start smelling smoke. Almost immediately, a flight attendant comes into the cockpit and tells the crew that there's a fire in the passenger cabin. And uh, you can actually hear passengers shouting fire on the cockpit voice recorder. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's <laughs> bad. The value jet flight attendant training manual says that the cockpit door should not be opened when there's smoke or harmful gases in the cabin. Uh-huh. But, you know, because of the electrical problems, the intercom wasn't working and, you know, the flight attendant had to tell the pilots what was going on. So, wait, so the, their intercom system wasn't working from the beginning? Well, as a result of this, there's electrical okay. problems because of the fire. Gotcha. Uh, those electrical problems are starting to manifest themselves. So the flight data recorder actually indicated a progressive fault of the electrical and flight control systems because of the spreading fire. You know, as the fire spreads and starts taking more stuff out, mm-hmm. you know, less and less things become operational. Uh, and at this time, the plane is still climbing and it hit its maximum altitude of about 11,000 feet. And they were instructed to descend and maintain 7,000 feet and, you know, turn back to Miami. And then air traffic control told them to descend to 5,000 feet. And uh, at this point, you know, Flight 592 requests just to get to the closest airport. You know, they're, they're not concerned about getting all the way back to Miami. They're just, and they, they weren't in the air that long. They were just looking for any airstrip they could just put themselves down. Just put us down, down. yeah. Right. Uh, then at this point, the cockpit voice recorder becomes interrupted. It stops recording for like a minute and 12 seconds. It comes back on and then gets interrupted again. Is this an electrical issue again? Or Right. We're dealing okay. with that same electrical issue. You know, even things that are supposed to be working uh, properly are suffering because of uh, this rapidly spreading fire on the plane. Flight 592 disappears from the radar just before 2.14 p.m., which is the exact time of the crash. And there's actually eyewitnesses uh, who watched the plane. They said that it banked sharply, rolled on its side, and nosedived into the Everglades. Oh, shit. Uh, Yeah, and the plane was going about 507 miles an hour when it crashed. Um, I've I've seen some photos of the crash site, and, you know, the Everglades are pretty swampy. It's like you, you can't see anything. You see essentially just like, a fuel slick on the water and the planes essentially disappeared. Oh man. Like it's, it, it, it just went through the water, hit the swamp and uh, disintegrated. Like did the plane fall apart or did it like sink? Uh, okay. Well, it hit with such great force that 
it basically disintegrated and sank. So both. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a swamp. It's not like it's super deep water. Yeah. So it seems like based on all the data that the that Captain Kubik lost control of the plane less than 10 seconds before impact, you know, that fire was just uh, damaging all the flight controls. So examination of the debris suggests that the fire had burned through the floorboards of the cabin. And this resulted in structural failure and damage to the cables underneath all the instrument panels. So again, Wait. that fire was just doing everything. So was the fire above them and burned through the floorboard or below them below them okay because uh, the floor think about the floor it's under you right so it's like yeah it's on the uh the bottom of the cabin like that's where all the cargo is on the bottom of the plane so okay. that's where the fire was uh and to answer your question the plane was destroyed on impact with no large pieces of fuselage remaining and there were no survivors and of course recovery of the aircraft and victims was really difficult because of the location you know they're out in the swamp so the nearest road of any kind was reportedly more than a quarter mile away and you know like we talked about the crash was in swamp water so it's difficult to get to and then add to the hat that there's like sawgrass and alligators and you know just yeah. wildlife in the swamp that make it dangerous for any search party to try to get to the the crash site uh in fact there was actually a group of sightseers who were flying in a small private plane who saw the crash and you know they tried to to help the first responders locate it but they couldn't see anything other than small debris uh, part of an engine and a large pool of jet fuel like that's how little wreckage Damn. was visible and I, I guess it's like one of those things to, as far as the bodies, like alligators would be eating them, I assume, right? And That and might be, be a problem. Yeah, I don't know if that was uh, reported on, but I, I mean, there's animals there, right? And yeah. Who, who knows? So recovery of the passengers and crew actually took several weeks because of how difficult it was uh, to get to. And there weren't very many intact remains found due to, you know, the violence of the impact uh, the immersion in the water. And probably like you mentioned, you know, scavenging wildlife. 68 of the people on board were identified. Of, of how many? 110. So, like man. that, there was it was just such a violent crash. Man, what happened? Right? I mean, that's the big yeah. question. So we're gonna, we're going to get into uh, a little bit of background. First, got to give you background on a part of the plane. So that, before we before we get forward to the actual the end result, so I want to talk about oxygen generators. So you know how you, when you get on a plane, they give you the pre-flight safety thing, and they're like, if we lose pressure, pull down, and uh, a mask will deploy. Pull down, it'll activate oxygen. Right? Yeah. Well, where where does that oxygen come from, right? There's these things called oxygen generators that provide emergency oxygen to the passengers if the cabin pressure is lost. So when you pull down on that, you're actually activating this little oxygen generator uh, up in the overhead compartment. They're mounted behind panels, you know, above or adjacent to the passengers. And they either open automatically or there's a manual switch that makes uh, the masks pop out. So, so, okay. So is it every single mask has their own little generator or is it all, it's okay. So it's not one big thing. Correct. They're they're all kind of small. I'd say maybe if you were like looking at one, it's a it's like a metal can, maybe a little bigger than a soda can. Oh, that's so weird. I, in my head, whenever it's like oxygen gets deployed, there was like a big tank, and they were all pulling from the same tank. Oh right, that's yeah. just like in my head how I imagined it worked. Yeah, this is this is probably lighter. Like uh, since they don't have to worry about carrying that big tank, you know, there's like a chemical reaction in this oxygen generator that creates the oxygen. Gotcha. Um, it's uh, probably easier to do. Each mask is connected in two places to the generator. You know, there's a plastic tube connected to the mask reservoir bag uh, to an outlet on one end of the generator, and that's where, you know, you get your oxygen. Uh, and on top of that, there's a slim white cord that connects each mask to a pin that's uh, attached to a spring-loaded mechanism. So that's why I tell you to pull down on the mask. That pulls the pin out and activates the oxygen generator. The spring-loaded mechanism, it strikes a little percussion cap, which has like a little small explosive charge that provides the energy to start that chemical reaction uh, which 
makes the oxygen. So when these oxygen generators are being shipped, there's a little cap that goes over that percussive cap to prevent that activation. The shipping cap is removed once they install the generator and they test it, you know? The chemical reaction caused by this percussion cap strike is exothermic, so it releases heat as a byproduct. I hope you kept up on your chemistry and physics. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, so, I, I got it. I got it. Okay, good, good. So, okay, so the limit by McDonnell Douglas on how hot it can get in an ambient, like let's say 70 to 80 degree temperature, is the, it, it's supposed to generate no more than 547 degrees Fahrenheit. So this thing gets really hot. The maximum temperature for these uh, oxygen generators is typically between 450 and 500 degrees Fahrenheit. But just really quick and a quick little like... No, it's it's sustained. While this chemical reaction is oh. going on, they're very hot. They're, they're actually mounted. Typically, there's a little heat shield uh, that separates them from you. It's like this little... It's a tiny little piece of metal that it sits on that like helps dissipate the heat. So it doesn't uh, raise the ambient temperature down uh, on you too much. Oh. So huh. I hope you're not scared of oxygen generators now. <laughs> I just realized that as I'm saying all of this, it must, it must sound absolutely terrifying. <laughs> An oven is above you, pumping out <laughs> oxygen. It just seems like the, everything you need for a fire. I, I never made the the analogy connecting it to an oven until you, you said that right then. <laughs> so now you know how oxygen generators work on a plane. That's going to be important. We're going to go into value jet here a little bit. Uh, January 31st, 1996, ValueJet agreed to purchase two McDonnell Douglas uh, MD-82s from McDonnell Douglas. And on February 1st, they purchased an MD-83 as well. You may have flown on this plane. They don't. They, these planes aren't that common anymore. It's the kind where you would get on. It was like two seats on one side and three seats on the other. Hmm. Uh, American Airlines used to fly them quite a bit. Anyway, all, all three of these planes that ValueJet purchased were taken to the Miami maintenance and overhaul facility of a company called SaberTech Corporation uh, because they needed modifications and maintenance. So SaberTech was an FAA-certified repair maintenance facility that had a contract with ValueJet for maintenance on their planes. So, you know, it's not ValueJet who's actually maintaining their own planes, they contract this company called Sabertech. Gotcha. So these planes show up and uh, ValueJet asks for inspection of the oxygen generators on all three of the planes to see if they had exceeded the service lifespan and if they need to be replaced. So Sabertech digs into it. They find that on the MD-83, the uh, generators expired in 1998, uh, but the, in the two MD-82s, the oxygen generators were past their expiration. So ValueJet tells Sabertech, go and replace the oxygen generators on those two planes. Okay, so yeah, so some of them you said were expiring in 1998, so that's like right. two years. They had right. two, two more years. Exactly. No need to replace those yet. So ValueJet provides maintenance manuals and work cards with specific instructions on how to safely remove and stow these oxygen generators that were provided by the manufacturer, McDonnell Douglas. The maintenance manual has a six-step procedure for removing the generators. The work card has a seven-step procedure, and step two of that says, if the generator has not been expended, install shipping cap on firing pin, which is what we talked about. You know, you want to make sure that the firing pin doesn't go off. While they're shipping them? Right. While they're shipping them or, you know, moving them around or okay. even storing them. So the work card and manuals also contain warnings that when ignited, you know, they can reach temperatures of up to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. And these generators mm -hmm. should be placed in a non-combustible surface when removed, which we talked about already a little earlier. So middle of March 1996, Sabertech begins removing the generators from the planes. And the task was completed uh, the next month on April 30th. Before we continue, a word from our sponsors. Did you know two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left. You can get treated from home. You used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription, but now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to the pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor visits. 
Uh, Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You may have tried them before, but probably never for this price. Prevention is key. Keeps treatments can take up to four to six months or more to see results, so it's important to act fast. And the sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. You can find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors and nearly 100,000 men. Trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatment starts at just $10 a month, plus for a limited time, you can get your first month free. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash blackboxdown to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash blackboxdown. Guys, I'm sure you've all had the experience of having a mishap while doing some personal grooming in the shower. Well, no need to worry about it anymore. Start taking notes because Manscaped accidents are finally a thing of the past. There's no more cuts and nicks with Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0. This is their third generation trimmer featuring advanced skin safe technology so you keep your bad boys nice and smooth. The Manscaped engineering team spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created and just released the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. And it's definitely premium. The battery lasts up to 90 minutes, so you can take a longer shave. Uh, hopefully you don't need that full 90 minutes. It's got great features like an LED light which illuminates grooming areas for a closer, more precise trimming. Let's not forget about charging stand. You can show off your mower loud and proud because this intelligently designed stand is a rapid charging dock powered by USB. So many people have written in stories about how the Lawnmower 3.0 has changed their lives. Uh, they've even included picks to show off the smoothness, and uh, they are not kidding. You need to try this for yourself. You can get 20% off and free shipping with code BLACKBOXDOWN at manscaped.com. If they could, you know, they thank you. So uh, to get 20% off and free shipping with code BLACKBOXDOWN at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using code BLACKBOXDOWN. So here's where things start to go a little wrong. Almost all of these generators were placed in cardboard boxes and stowed on a rack in the hangar near the airplane, but some of the generators were just left lying loosely on the rack. Uh-oh. Yeah, the generators were tagged with remarks that indicated they were expired, and maintenance records indicate that six of the generators were expended out of the 144 total. So there's still 138 that were not expended. Okay, so like six of them had gone off at some point in their life history. Is that what right, you're... so okay. they, were, they were basically inert. Okay. So the mechanic who signed the work card stated that he wrapped the loose end of the lanyard around the cylinder. Remember that little pool tab that we talked uh-huh. about earlier? He wrapped it around the cylinder and secured it with tape and placed them in cardboard boxes on their side on top of each other. He assumed these boxes were not the final packaging container since he didn't see any packing material around. He said he did not have anything to do with the movement of these boxes to the shipping hold area. The same mechanic also said he was aware of the need for safety caps and the amount of heat that the canisters could generate, but a supervisor said they did not have any safety caps available and he didn't follow up on getting any. Hmm. So basically the mechanic takes them out, puts them on a box uh, on a shelf, and he knows that he doesn't have caps. Yeah, but it's also, it's it's not his job. To, he's not like the shipping dude. Right? Correct. It's, yeah, it's not like, in the shipping area. He just put it like in, a, in the maintenance bay. Yeah. So another mechanic who signed the work card said he placed the generators in the same cardboard tubes that the new ones had arrived in and placed them upright in a cardboard box, same as the new ones. He also did not put the caps on the generators. Four individuals signed the final work cards for these planes, and three of them did not know about the safety cap issue. Uh, however, the Sabertech inspector who signed off the final inspection was aware the generators needed safety caps, but said he was told that the Sabertech supervisor and ValueJet technical representative were aware and that it would be taken care of. So basically, he was like, hey, these things need caps, and he says that he was told, don't worry, someone's going to take care of it. So, uh, and so he signed the card after being reassured. Hmm. He put them with all like the new ones? Yeah, so okay, so so here's what happens. The, the new ones have already been installed in the planes, right? They just okay. put the old ones in the new packaging that the new oh, ones came in. Gotcha. 
Okay, so they just took the new boxes, <laughs> stuffed the old ones in it. That seems exactly. like a, a a recipe, well, for a disaster. Yeah, yeah there, here we are. A couple of days later, you know, by the first week of May 1996, most of the generators were collected into five cardboard boxes. Three of them were taken to the ValueJet section of Sabretech's shipping and receiving hold by a mechanic. It's the same mechanic who discussed that issue about the safety caps to a supervisor. Uh, he was asked to do this either by the lead mechanic or supervisor. He placed the boxes on the floor near some other boxes, but he did not inform anyone of the contents. And then no one knows who moved the other boxes. Mm -hmm. So according to the director of logistics at Sabretech, there was no formal written procedure uh, that required an individual who took items to the shipping and receiving area to inform someone what the items were or if they were hazardous. So it's just like, just drop off boxes and walk away. <laughs> right. You don't have to tell anyone, uh, e even if it's hazardous. Uh, and there were no hazmat warnings on the boxes uh, that had the old generators, except for the ones that the new generators came in. So you know, it's this mishmash of boxes. There's some new boxes, some old boxes. Some have hazmat stickers, uh, some don't. So due to some housekeeping, all the boxes that were on that area floor were to be removed. And on May 8th, the stock clerk asked the director of logistics if he could close up the boxes and prep them for shipment to Atlanta, to which the director agreed. Uh-oh. They thought that these generators were empty based on the green tags that they had on them, and no mechanic had ever told them that they were still active. Uh, the clerk reorganized the generators, placing them end-to-end -end in the boxes, and put two to three inches of bubble wrap uh, on the top of each box. Uh. Yeah, he then labeled the boxes as ValueJet Comat, which is short for company material with the notification of aircraft parts and that they were also indicated as empty on the shipping ticket. Oh. Yeah, this is where things are really starting to get messed up. So he asked a driver to take them to the ValueJet ramp area on May 10th, but the driver was busy that day and he ended up taking them on May 11th along with some tires. The boxes and tires were loaded into the Ford cargo compartment in bin two on ValueJet flight 592. And the five cardboard boxes were stacked on top of the tires. A ramp agent who was loading the cargo said they were not secured and they had no means for securing the cargo. So. They just tossed these boxes full of ovens stacked, stacked on top of each other. Yeah, on in, top of tires. On top in, of tires. In the, uh, in the cargo bin. Ugh. The investigation, we're going to get into the investigation. Now, we've just kind of been setting everything up here, right? The investigation found that the fire that downed the flight started in the cargo hold below the passenger cabin. The cargo compartment was designated as a Class D cargo compartment, which means that Fire suppression is accomplished by sealing off the hold from outside air. Uh, any fire in an airtight compartment would burn out, you know, as all the air oxidizes and is gone. Normally, when there's no oxygen. Correct. <laughs> you, you, you've discovered something here. <laughs> oh, so man. because this happens without, you know, the crew needing to intervene, there's no smoke detectors in the cargo hold because they figure it, they don't need it because there, there can't be a fire because there's no oxygen. Oh, my God. But there are over 100 oxygen generators on the plane in this cargo hold. Uh, it's actually against FAA regulation to transport hazardous material on a passenger plane, but they were labeled as company material, not hazardous material. Oh. Again, like it's just this cascade of problems and mess-ups that are uh, culminating in all of this. So since the generators were loosely packed in a cardboard box without their safety caps, guess what? They activated. Uh, the loud bang that the pilots heard six minutes after takeoff is believed to be one of the tires that was stowed with the generators. During the NTSB tests... Uh, they, a main gear tire inflated and ruptured 16 minutes after the first oxygen generator was activated. So did they? Did one of them go off or did they all go off at once or do we not know? We're, oh, we'll, we're going to get to that. <laughs> um, so the NTSB determined that the initial fire on the plane was caused by one or more generators going off uh, started sometime between the loading process 
and as late as the takeoff roll. So the fire started before they even took off. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. So according to the flight data recorder, the bang that the pilots heard correlated with a spike in the altimeter readings that suggest a sudden drop in cabin pressure caused by the exploding tire. The fire also began to destroy cables and wires, which resulted in the loss of control to the airplane for the pilots. So, it, I mean, speculation is that it's it's one or a couple of generators that probably started the fire, but then it just kept spreading and activating all of them. It just oh. kept going. And then on top of that, you know, there were tires there to fuel the fire as well. Yeah. So, I mean, th- this sounds like something that could have happened anywhere. If it happened before they even took off, couldn't it have happened in a warehouse or any, I mean. Well, they would have noticed, the, like the, the ramp loading agent would have noticed the box was hot and on fire. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm just saying like they were oh. they were packed so poorly, like it say they right. were just in the, in the storage area uh, at night. They could right. have just gone off then, right? Right. Or like when they put it in the truck to carry it, to drive it out to the ramp and it could have activated there. It just was unfortunate that it happened on the plane. Yeah. And uh, the fire was actually so intense that uh, recovered metal seat frames were melted. Uh, these, these seat frames are made out of aluminum, and aluminum's melting point is 1,221 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. So it was at least that hot because it was able to melt these metal seat frames. So were people in the cabin on fire before they even landed? Uh, crashed? Yeah. Yes. It, it's unknown. Most likely, they would have probably passed out from smoke inhalation. Oh. Yeah, but I mean, it's 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 really it's really hard to know. And then you know, there's the the state of the remains that were recovered probably make it very difficult to pinpoint that. So after this is all said and done, you know, NTSB is pretty sure they have uh, they they have this figured out. You know, they're able to test it and recreate it in the lab and everything. And yeah. the NTSB report places the blame on SaberTech, ValueJet, and the FAA. SaberTech is blamed for improper packaging and storing of hazardous material. ValueJet is blamed for not properly supervising SaberTech. And the FAA is blamed for not mandating smoke detectors and fire suppression in cargo holds after it was recommended due to a similar incident happening back in 1988. Oh. So the FAA knew that this was potentially a problem but didn't do anything about it. So on June 10th, 1997, the next year, the FAA issued a note of proposed rulemaking that would require the installation of smoke detection and fire suppression systems in all Class D cargo compartments. And the FAA indicated it would have the final rule issued by the end of the year, and the airline industry would have until March 18th, 2001 to meet these standards. So basically, all cargo bays have to have smoke detection and fire suppression now. Good. Yeah, good. It's a, it's, it's a really good thing. So in 1997, a federal grand jury indicted Sabertech for mishandling hazardous material, failing to train employees in proper handling of hazardous material, conspiracy, um, and making false statements. Sabertech's maintenance supervisor, Daniel Gonzalez, uh, and two mechanics who worked on the plane, uh, Eugene Florence and Mauro Valenzuela, were charged with conspiracy and making false statements. Two years later, Sabertech was found guilty of mishandling hazardous material and improper training, and it was fined $2 million in order to pay $9 million in restitution. Uh, Gonzalez and Florence were acquitted on all charges, but Valenzuela failed to appear in court and was indicted in absentia for contempt of court. And in fact, He's still wanted by the FBI. He's still on the run what? to this day. Yeah, there's a $10,000 reward for information on him. Uh, so if you follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod, I'll, I'll post his uh, his FBI wanted poster. Oh, man. So uh, if, you, <laughs> if you see that and you recognize him, you could get $10,000 <laughs> from the FBI. I mean, they're still looking for him. So so he was just like, uh, I'm in trouble for, for this plane thing and just like ghosted. Yeah. So it's speculated that he actually fled the country. Uh, the FBI remarks that he may be in Chile uh, and may travel to Peru, Argentina, Brazil, and Bolivia, as well as uh, other South American countries. 
so so when you said the other uh, guys were charged with false statements, were they just lying about the storage of those uh, oxygenizers? Trying to cover up oxygen. Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. They were just trying to to deflect any blame from themselves, and you know, of course, cover cover themselves. Yeah. Right. So ValueJet was grounded on June sixteenth, nineteen ninety six, but was allowed to resume flying on September thirtieth. But the airline never recovered from the crash. Uh, in 1997, they acquired Airtran Airways, and they actually changed their name to Airtran. Oh, so yeah, they essentially they knew that people didn't would never trust ValueJet again, so they bought another airline and then changed their name to that airline. Huh. So prior to this, was ValueJet known as like just a shitty airline that was cheap? Yeah, I mean it's 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 interesting you bring that up because the families of the victims. You know, where they were pretty upset that ValueJet wasn't prosecuted in all of this because ValueJet actually had a super high incident rate and it was almost 14 times higher than other airline incident rates. Whoa. Right. So it's like it was it was definitely a problem. Like I mentioned earlier, the FAA was really thinking about shutting them down because of their uh, loose safety practices. Yeah. Well, just the, the age of their planes in general. Right. I mean. Uh, and the families uh, also point to statements made by the ValueJet officials immediately after the crash that suggests they knew the generators were on the plane and ordered them returned to Atlanta, but nothing really came of that. Uh, on the third anniversary of the accident, uh, a memorial was dedicated to the victims in the Everglades, and it consists of 110 concrete pillars, and it's located just north of Tamiami Trail and points to the location of the crash site 12 miles north-northwest. ValueJet stopped using flight uh, number 592, and so did AirTran when they merged. And guess what? Southwest Airlines also retired that number on January 5th, 2015, when they acquired AirTran. Oh. So ValueJet became AirTran, was eventually acquired by Southwest Airlines. Oh. Uh, but I wouldn't actually hold that against Southwest Airlines. They actually have a very excellent safety rating. Um, yeah. And this is, these are the kinds of planes that Southwest flies. Southwest only flies Boeing 737s. Most likely, they acquired AirTran for uh, their routes, for more access to Atlanta. Gotcha. So yeah, like I said, don't don't hold that against Southwest Air. <laughs> don't 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 worry. Don't think that Southwest Airlines has a, a bad safety record because of that. Well, yeah, and also that was like the company before the company that then they bought. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and there's an interesting footnote to this. I remember after ValueJet rebranded to AirTran, about six days after that happened, uh, their website was hacked. And someone changed the graphics on their website to show like instead of a, a plane taking off, it showed a plane catching on fire and crashing into a swamp. Oh, my God. Yeah, and they had like this long text post on their website about how nobody should fly AirTran and uh, how unsafe they are. You can still find screenshots of that old hacked website if that's something that interests you. Yeah, could you put that on the social? Yeah, we'll put that on the social too. That way people can, uh, can check it out. Uh, and one last fact, uh, one of our uh, producers here, Dennis was almost on that flight. What? Uh, yeah, with his uh, with his mom and his sister. Wait, I want. I got to ask Dennis about this. But what? So what? What were the circumstances in which he was almost on this flight? That's like one of those. I don't know. Like, what if scary horror movie things? Yeah, you want to talk about that, Dennis? Yeah. So I was just a baby at the time, so I don't remember being there. But my family was in Miami at the time, and we were coming back home. And we were on the same route either the day before or after on a uh, similar plane. So so this was an option. This was a flight you could have taken for your journey. Yeah, we were just a day away from being on that plane. Man. So um, there you have it. That's ValueJet 592. It's, a, it's a, a really brutal crash that was easily... It could easily have been prevented. And uh, Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think 
an, an accident like this would happen anymore these days. Yeah. It just sounds, I mean, it just sounds like the worst decisions possible. Cause it, it, there's some of these that it seems like, oh, there was just like this one bad thing here and this one bad thing. And they all kind of like coalesced in, in, a, in a weird way. This was just like one really big, stupid thing. Just bad transportation of ovens. You know? <laughs> of a hundred of a hundred tiny ovens. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, th- 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 there, there were rules in place at the time to try to prevent this kind of thing. But ultimately, you know, having fire detection and suppression in the cargo hold uh, is what will prevent something like this from happening again, you know, in the future. It's a terrible tragedy, but you learn and uh, the aviation industry uh, adapts to, to try to make itself safer as a result of it. Yeah. All right. So um, again, I just want to remind everyone, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode. I want to remind everyone to uh, check us out. Any podcast service that you like, subscribe to us, uh, leave us a rating, tell a couple friends. Uh, if you find this stuff interesting, because I find it incredibly interesting. And and we'll put the uh, the social handles in the uh, description as well. Yeah, but you can follow on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Black Box Down Pod. You'll know it because it has our logo on it. Hey. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks. Done with Black Box Down and want a podcast recommendation? Go listen to Always Open. It's half comedy show, half relationship advice column. It's all about people trying to figure out life. I'd recommend episode 130, How Well Do Gus and Jeff Know Each Other? Because it's got me in it, and Gus is there too. Uh, Just search for Always Open on Spotify or wherever you're listening now.